0: The Real Romance by Julian Hawthorne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. The Real Romance. The author laid down his pen and leaned back in his big easy chair. The last word had been written, fini, and there was the complete book quite a tall pile of manuscript, only waiting for the printer's hands to become immortal. So the author whispered to himself. He had worked hard upon it. Great pains had been expended upon the delineations of character, and the tone and play of incident. The plot, too, had been worked up with much artistic force and skill. And, above all, everything was so strikingly original." no one in regarding the various characters of the tale could say, this is intended for so-and-so. No, nothing precisely like the persons in his romance had ever actually existed. Of that the author was certain, and in that he was probably correct. To be sure, there was the character of the country girl, Mary, which he had taken from his own little waiting-maid, but that was a very subordinate element and although, on the whole, he rather regretted having introduced anything so incongruous and unimaginative, he decided to let it go. The romance, as a whole, was too great to be injured by one little country girl drawn from real life. And, by the way, murmured the author to himself, I wish Mary would bring in my tea. He settled himself still more comfortably in his easy chair, and thought and looked at his manuscript and the manuscript looked back, but all its thinking had been done for it. Neither spoke, the author, because the book already knew all he had to say, and the book, because its time to speak and be immortal, had not yet arrived. The fire had all the talking to itself, and it cackled and hummed and skipped about so cheerfully that one would have imagined it expected to be the very first to receive a presentation copy of the work on the table how i would devour its contents laughed the fire perhaps the author did not comprehend the full force of the fire's remark but the voice was so cosy and soothing the fire itself so ruddy and genial and the easy chair so softly cushioned and hospitable that he very soon fell into a condition which enabled him to see hear and understand a great many things which might seem remarkable and indeed almost incredible the manuscript on the table which had hitherto remained perfectly quiet now rustled its leaves nervously and finally flung itself wide open a murmur then arose as of several voices and presently there appeared though whether stepping from between the leaves of the book itself or growing together from the surrounding atmosphere the author could not well make out A number of peculiar looking individuals, at the first glance appearing to be human beings, though a clear investigation revealed in each some odd lack or exaggeration of gesture, feature, or manner, which might create a doubt as to whether they actually were, after all, what they purported to be, or only some Lucis nature. But the author was not slow to recognize them, more especially as, happening to cast a glance at the manuscript, He noticed that it was such no longer, but a collection of unwritten sheets of paper, blank as when it lay in the drawer of the stationers, unwitting of the lofty destiny awaiting it. Here, then, were the immortal creations which were soon to astound the world, come in person to pay their respects to the author of their being. He arose and made a profound obeisance to the august company, which they one and all returned. Though, in such a queer variety of ways that the author, albeit aware that every individual had the best of reasons for employing under certain special circumstances his or her particular manner of salute, could scarcely forbear smiling at the effect they altogether produced in his own unpretending study. Your welcome visit said the author, addressing his guests with all the geniality of which he was master, for they seemed somewhat stiff and ill at ease gives me peculiar gratification. I regret not having asked some of my friends, the critics, up here to make your acquaintance. I am sure you would all come to the best possible understanding directly.' "'They cannot fathom me!' exclaimed a strikingly handsome young man, with pale lofty brow and dark clustering locks, who was leaning with proud grace against the mantelpiece. "'They may take my life, but they cannot read my soul.' And he laughed scornfully as he always did. This was a passage from that famous anti-mortem soliloquy in which the hero of the romance indulges in the last chapter but one. The author, while of course he could not deny that the elegance of the diction was only equalled by the originality of the sentiment, yet felt a slight uneasiness that his hero should adopt so defiant a tone with those who were indeed to be the arbiters of his existence." I'm afraid there's not enough perception of the comme il faut in him to suit the everyday world, muttered he. To be sure, he was not constructed for ordinary ends. Do you find yourself at home in this life, madam? He continued aloud, turning to a young lady of matchless beauty, whose brief career of passionate love and romantic misery the author had described in thrilling chapters. She raised her luminous eyes to his and murmured reproachfully, Why speak to me of life? If it be not love, it is life no longer. It was very beautiful, and the author recollected having thought, at the time he wrote it down, that it was about the most forcible sentence in that most powerful passage of his book. But it was rather an exaggerated tone to adopt in the face of such commonplace surroundings. Had this exquisite creature, after all, no better sense of the appropriate... No one can know better than I, my dear Constance, said the author in a fatherly tone, what a beautiful, tender, and lofty soul yours is. But would it not be well, once in a while, to veil its luster, to subdue it to a tint more in keeping with the unvariegated hue of common circumstance? Heartless and cruel, sobbed Constance, falling upon the sofa, hast thou not made me what I am? This accusation, intended by the author to be leveled at the traitor lover, quite took him aback when directed, with so much aptness too, at his respectable self. But whom but himself could he blame, if, when common sense demanded only civility and complacence, she persisted in adhering to the tragic and sentimental? He was provoked that he had not noticed this defect in time to remedy it, yet he had once considered Constance as perhaps the completest triumph of his genius. There seemed to be something particularly disenchanting in the atmosphere of that study. "'I'm afraid you're a failure, ma'am, after all,' sighed the author, eyeing her disconsolately. "'You're so one-sided.' At this heartless observation, the lady gave a harrowing shriek, thereby summoning to her side a broad-shouldered young fellow, clad in soldier's garb, with a countenance betokening much boldness and determination he faced the author with an angry frown which the latter at once recognized as being that of constance's brother sam now then old bloke sang out that young gentleman what new deviltry are you up to down on your knees and beg her pardon or by george i'll run you through the body on this character the author had expended much thought and care he was the type of the hardy and bold adventurer rough and unpolished perhaps but of true and sterling metal who by dint of his vigorous common sense and honest energetic nature should at once clear and lighten whatever in the atmosphere of the story was obscure and sombre and by the salutary contrast of his fresh and rugged character with the delicate or morbid traits of his fellow-beings lend a graceful symmetry to the whole the sentence sam had just delivered with so much emphasis ought to have been addressed to the traitor lover, when discovered in the act of inconstancy, and so given, would have been effective and dramatic. But at a juncture like the present, the author felt it to be simply ludicrous, and had he not been so mortified, would have laughed outright. Don't make a fool of yourself, Sam, remonstrated he. Reflect whom you're addressing, and in what company you are, and do try and talk like a civilized being come come no palaver returned sam in a loud and boisterous tone to do him justice he had never been taught any other down on your marrow bones at once or here goes for your gizzard and he drew his sword with a flourish so this was the rough diamond the epitome of common sense why he was a half-witted impertinent overbearing booby and his author longed to get him across his knee and correct him in the good old way But meantime, the point of the young warrior's sword was getting unpleasantly near the left breast pocket of the author's dressing gown, which he wore at the time, and the latter happened to recollect, with a nervous thrill, that this was the sword which mortally wounded the traitor lover, for whom Sam evidently mistook him during the stirring combat so vividly described in the twenty-second chapter. Could he but have foreseen the future, what a different ending that engagement should have had? But again it was too late, and the author sprang behind the big easy-chair with astonishing agility, and from that vantage-ground endeavored to bring on a parley. Yet how could he argue and expostulate against himself? How arraigned Sam of harboring murderous designs which he had himself implanted in his bosom? How, indeed, expect him to comprehend conversation so entirely foreign to his experience? It was an awkward dilemma. It was sam who took it by the horns somebody he felt must be mortally wounded and finding himself defrauded of one subject he took up with the next he encountered which chanced to be none other than the venerable and white-haired gentleman who filled the position in the tale of a wealthy and benevolent uncle the author having always felt a sentiment of exceptional respect and admiration for this reverend and patriarchal personage who by his gentle words and sage counsels no less than his noble generosity had done so much to elevate and sweeten the tone of his book fell into an ecstasy of terror at witnessing the approach of his seemingly inevitable destruction especially as he perceived that the poor old fellow who never in his life had met with aught but reverence and affection and knew nothing of the nature of deadly weapons and impulses was, so far from attempting to defend himself or even escape, actually opening his arms to the widest extent of avuncular hospitality, and preparing to take his assassin, sword and all, into his fond and forgiving heart. "'You old fool!' shrieked the author, in the excess of his irritation and despair. "'He isn't your repentant nephew. Why can't you keep your forgiveness until it's wanted?' but uncle dudley having been created solely to forgive and benefit was naturally incapable of taking care of himself and would certainly have been run through the ample white waistcoat had not an unexpected and wholly unprecedented interruption averted so awful a catastrophe a small graceful figure wearing a picturesque white cap with jaunty ribbons and a short scarlet petticoat from beneath which peeped the prettiest feet and ankles ever seen stepped suddenly between the philanthropic victim and his would-be murderer dealt the latter a vigorous blow across the face with a broom she carried thereby toppling him over ignominiously into the coal-scuttle and then placing her plump hands saucily akimbo she exclaimed with enchanting naivete there mr free-and-easy take that for your impertinence this little incident caused the author to fall back into his easy chair in a condition of profound emotion. It appeared to have corrected a certain dimness or obliquity of his vision, of the existence of which its cure rendered him for the first time conscious. The appearance of the little country girl, whose very introduction into the romance the author had looked upon with misgivings, had afforded the first gleam of natural, refreshing, wholesome interest in fact, the only relief to all that was vapid, irrational, and unreal, which the combined action of the characters in his romance had succeeded in producing. But the enchantress who had effected this, so far from being the most unadulterated product of his own brain and genius, was the only one of all his dramatis personae who was not in the slightest degree indebted to him for her existence. She was nothing more than an accurate copy of Mary the Housemaid while the others, the misformed, ill-balanced, one-sided creations, who the moment they were placed beyond the pale of their written instructions, put out of the regular and pre-arranged order of their going, displayed in every word and gesture their utter lack and want of comprehension of the simplest elements of human nature. These were the unaided offspring of the author's fancy, and yet it was by help of such as these he had thought to push his way to immortality, how the world would laugh at him! And as he thought this, a few bitter tears of shame and humiliation trickled down the sides of the poor man's nose. Presently he looked up. The warlike Sam remained sitting disconsolately in the coal hod. His instructions suggested no means of extrication. Forsaken Constance lay fainting on the sofa, waiting for someone to chafe her hands and bathe her temples the strikingly handsome betrayer leant in sullen and gloomy silence against the mantelpiece ready to treat all advances with stern and defiant obduracy the benevolent uncle stood with open arms and bland smile never doubting but that everybody was preparing for a simultaneous rush to and participation in his embrace and finally the pretty little country girl with her arms akimbo and her nose in the air remained mistress of the situation. Her unheard-of innovation, of having done something timely, sensible, and decisive, even though not put down in the book, seemed to have paralyzed all the others. Ah, she was the only one there who was not less than a shadow. The author felt his disconsolate heart yearn towards her, and the next moment found himself on his knees at her feet. Mary, cried he, You are my only reality. The others are empty and soulless, but you have a heart. They are the children of a conceited brain and visionary experience. You only have I drawn simply and unaffectedly as you actually existed. Except for you, whom I slighted and despised, my whole romance had been an unmitigated falsehood. To you I owe my preservation from worse than folly, and my initiation into true wisdom. Mary, "'Dear Mary, in return I have but one thing to offer you, my heart. Can you? Will you not love me?' To his intense surprise, Mary, instead of evincing a becoming sense of her romantic situation, burst forth into a merry peal of laughter, and catching him by one shoulder gave him a hearty shake. "'Lost sakes! Mr. Arthur, do wake up! Did ever anybody hear such a man?' There was his room, his fire, his chair, his table, and his closely written manuscript lying quietly upon it. There was he himself on his knees on the carpet, and there was Mary the housemaid, one hand holding the brimming teapot, the other held by the author against his lips, and laughing and blushing in a tumult of surprise, amusement, and, perhaps, something better than either. Did I say I loved you, Mary? inquired the author in a state of bewilderment, Never mind, I say now that I love you with all my heart and soul, and ten times as much when awake as when I was dreaming. Will you marry me? Mary only blushed rosier than ever, but she and the author always thereafter took their tea cozily together. As for the romance, the author took it and threw it into the fire, which roared a genial acknowledgment, and in five minutes had made itself thoroughly acquainted with every page. There remained a bunch of black flakes, and in the center one soft, glowing spark, which lingered a long while, ere finally taking its flight up the chimney. It was the description of the little country girl. The next book I write shall be all about you, the author used to say to his wife in after years, as they sat together before the fireplace and watched the bright blaze roar up the chimney. End of The Real Romance by Julian Hawthorne Recording by Colleen McMahon.